Hello and welcome to Consensus Conversations 2022, presented by Oak Network, live from Austin, Texas. Hello from Consensus 2022. I'm Eleanor Paul, and I'm here with Bill Barheit at the Coindesk podcast booth presented by Oak Network. Bill is the CEO of Avra. Avra recently released some big news at Consensus. There's an expansion of your platform's crypto services to include a crypto rewards card with American Express. So just to start out, hello. And also, why don't you give a brief overview of Abra for those who aren't familiar, and then some details on this card you're offering. Sure. So Abra is a crypto wealth management platform. I like to think of it as a, as a big crypto bank. And we allow people to trade cryptocurrencies, earn yield on crypto uh, that they custody with us, uh, borrow against crypto holdings, so you can borrow cash against your Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, yesterday, we launched or announced our Abra crypto card uh, on the American Express Network, our new NFT service. So we're really becoming a full service managed banking service for all types of digital assets. Okay, very cool. So, you know, these new services, you're really expanding what people can do with Abra within the crypto ecosystem. So I'm just wondering, who are some users you're expecting for these new products? We have three customer segments today. All are growing. Uh, We have our retail segment, which is uh, close to 3 million users now and growing strong. Uh, We've added about a million users over the last like seven months or so. And we have our private client services business. Uh, These are wealthier, high net worth individuals, generally managing high yield deposits of a few hundred thousand dollars up to tens of millions of dollars worth of crypto. Uh, Some of them are also borrowing against their holdings in order to get tax benefits from not having to sell and and getting the benefit of future gains, for example. And they get um, uh, very dedicated team-based support, uh, have a named representative in Abra, et cetera, et cetera. And then we have our institutional clients, and this ranges everything from our asset management business, which is the five funds that we manage today, to um, uh, institutions borrowing uh, crypto, to uh, actually treasury services now, where companies are depositing dollars that they convert to stable coins with Abra in order to earn high yield. So just hearing you discuss all of these services, um, it covers a lot of crypto. And I wonder, when you're expanding so much into these new areas, and also in new technologies, um, what about the, the outlook for the future? What do you expect to become bigger within Abra? Like, what's your take on this? Sure. Future? So the, the future of banking is going to be crypto-centric. That is our strongly held belief. and. As such, if you look at the palette of services that we have and that we've announced, it all basically kind of replaces traditional banking, but in a crypto-centric model, whether it's for doing exchange between currencies, getting exposure to Bitcoin or Ethereum, taking the crypto you have off an exchange to earn yield, borrowing against those assets, managing your NFTs now, getting a credit card to pay your bills even. Uh, We have people who use Abra like their bank account. They just store their dollars as uh, stable coins, earn eight, nine percent on them, and that's a better bank account. Now with the credit card, they can actually pay their bills even. So so we think about the future as a crypto-centric future, right? Bitcoin as the best reserve asset the world has ever seen. Right, it's 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 the pristine best, you know, monetary network out there. But in terms of building banking services, we think Ethereum, DeFi, is the future, and you know, DeFi, uh, NFT, stablecoins are showing us what you can do. They're showing us the power of smart contracts, 
and Abra as a crypto bank really represents the best user experience you can possibly have on top of those two networks. Okay, so would you say your users across those three sectors, would they feel familiar and maybe used to what you're offering because it's somewhat related or similar to traditional finance, but with that crypto integration? That's a great question, and yeah, yeah, absolutely, right? So I think it was Forbes referred to us as like the Robin Hood of crypto. Um, I would say after yesterday's announcement, you know, maybe uh, a little bit more like the First Republic of crypto, like, a, you know, or the, the Bank of America of crypto combined with Robinhood of crypto. But, but yeah, I mean, it, we want to be familiar, but we want to basically power this with the monetary networks of the future, not of the past, because that's what our users want. And of course, I'll have to ask, what's your market outlook? Just as I've been wandering around the conference floor, I hear a lot of people saying pretty optimistic things at this time, which it's nice to hear things like it's a great time to build. Um, so what's your perspective on this time in crypto and just the state of the market? Sure. I mean, we have a 15-year perspective on this. You can't build a crypto banking platform for a few billion people in a year. It's just not possible. So we have an ultra-long-term intergenerational outlook on where this is going, right? And, and it's that long of a perspective. And we think that in 10 to 15 years, the largest market cap banks, not companies, banks in the world are gonna be crypto-centric. So I don't, I'm not really too concerned about the short-term gyrations of crypto prices. Uh, I'm Personally, I'm, I'm massively long Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Abra, right? That's it, pretty much it right now. And you know, I think the future is, is incredible. I think it's gonna be, we're in, a, we're in this methodical march towards global decentralization. It's been happening for 50 years. B Bitcoin, Ethereum is another stop along the way on that journey towards global decentralized information technology. And it's a huge step, but it's yet another step. And, and in 10, 15 years, there'll be yet another step. And I'm excited about it. And I've dedicated my life to it. And I really believe that we wouldn't be seeing such exponential growth in the adoption of crypto if what I was saying wasn't true. I'm just wondering if you could provide maybe a little history here. You've been around for a long time. I'm just wondering how the company has expanded alongside the evolution of crypto technically and also how that just feels as a company. Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, when we started Abra, there was no crypto, it was Bitcoin. Uh, there was no Ethereum. Uh, all the phrases of stable coins, NFTs, uh, you know, DeFi, those monikers didn't exist. So the idea was because Bitcoin represented a monetary system and, and, and still does obviously, that has no financial intermediary, has no off switch, is literally the best money we've ever had in terms of like moving it around, lack of required centralized trust could I actually build a banking system on top of that? Turns out it's easier to do it if you have Bitcoin plus smart contracts, which is what Ethereum gave us. And so now the answer is yes, we can do it. And it's actually easier than it was when I started Abra. And you know, we started Abra uh, you know, like really early on this, this kind of crypto-centric journey. And now the technology and markets are catching up with us, which is which is awesome. Now, when you talk about decentralized technology, I'd like to just bring it to use cases. We talk about all of these different uses. Some of them are financial, some of them are community-based, and then some of them are for social good. So just in a broad sense, I'm wondering, 
even beyond the company, what are your thoughts on decentralized technology and the best use cases for it? So look, so the way I think about this is, um, I mean, this is broader than your question, but I think we reached peak centralization as a society when with the moon landing. Think about it, right? I mean, the massive centralized effort that it took you know, to build rockets for the first time and take a tin can and land it on, a, on, a, on, a, on a, another, effectively another moon or another planet is incredible. Ever since then, I don't think that was the reason that it was the peak, but ever since then, we've actually been on a march towards decentralization over the last 50 years. Started, and, and driven by computing technology and Moore's Law, right? Whether it's mainframes, then PCs, then smartphones, um, or then the internet, then now blockchain, Bitcoin, then Ethereum, and all of the other kind of decentralized uh, networks that we're building on top of that. You can see uh, even uh, Jack Dorsey's announcement with his Web5 ideas yesterday. It's all a movement towards more and more uh, decentralization and away from centralized trust. And it happens to be coinciding with this late stage debt cycle we're in, which is historically driven late stage debt cycles by large monolithic entities, governments, that basically don't understand all the previous debt cycles, which more or less function the same way, where they basically print money without end, which leads to you know, untenable debt, and all of the issues that we have now as a society. This has happened before, but what's different is this movement towards decentralized systems represents a potential break to the cycle, meaning that we don't necessarily have to have a future where we have another 80 years of printing money after this cycle of printing money. We'll see, um, but that's a big deal. It also basically says we have ways of managing institutions without actually having to, to trust large monolithic entities. And this is a, a relatively new concept, right, for, for humans, right? And, and we'll see how that evolves and plays out, but um, I think it's fascinating, uh, both intellectually, but also from a business and academic perspective. I mean, it's so much fun to be able to build something where the people own it, right? As, as opposed to, you know, your, temporarily granted a lease to land, which is actually what you get when you buy a property in the United States, right? Or, you know, the government basically says what's a security, what's not a security. That, that, all, that entire concept is about to go away. That's what the movement towards decentralized systems means to me. And we're just getting started. One thing I want to touch on is this period of inflation we're having and a lot of people are feeling some money troubles uh, just every day. And how do you think that's going to change adoption of crypto? H how do these two play together? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. I think that most people working in tech under the age of 35 have never experienced a recession, which is an interesting phenomenon. I've, unfortunately, I've experienced several. I think that I've also lived through stagflation as a kid, which in stagflation in, in, in very rough terms is price inflation combined with stagnant or falling growth, which could be combined like meaning inflation plus a recession, which is where I think we are now. And I talked about this a year and a half ago, or actually even before COVID, so over two years ago, I said the writing's on the wall that we're going to be headed towards a stagflationary environment. And most people I would explain it to had never heard of that before. And I said, well, I lived through it. Here's how it works. And, you know, Jimmy Carter didn't create it, just like Joe Biden didn't create it, but neither helped. And so... Now what this all translates into for people who are experiencing this inflation 
is that the government is going to end up with no choice but to raise interest rates in the short term significantly in order to preserve a reasonable value of the dollar, okay? Or at least give the perception that that's what they're doing. And then once that's done, it's going to be back to money printing and quantitative easing because no one will buy our debt anymore. That's actually the biggest structural problem uh, with the United States uh, as the world reserve currency today is that we've now fallen back to our own government, our own Federal Reserve as the debtor of last resort, which means that there is no one else. China won't buy our debt anymore. Uh, banks are forced to, but they don't want to. Once that breaks, we're done. The debt cycle is over. Historically, that's led to, to war, world war because people who are holding the bonds um, you know, don't want to be the last, last man standing. And so, like I said, that's historically led to wars. Ray Dalio is the master of explaining this. He's written about it many times. And so, uh, and his new book really uh, does a fantastic job of explaining it. But in the short term, it definitely means higher prices, lower wage growth. Um, it's a double whammy for middle class. The middle class gets, the middle class and particularly the lower middle class gets screwed again. The rich suffer with higher prices, faster inflation than the middle class for the short term at least, but they're already rich. So it's not, it's not as painful. But you know, the, the, like I said, the, the lower middle class and middle class really get screwed again. How long does this last? I think it's not gonna be as, it's not gonna be as long of a recession going to be more of a V because I think that supply chains are like way, way backed up now, meaning meaning that the inventories that were empty during COVID are going through the roof now while we're slowing down, which means that prices are going to come down dramatically across core consumer goods and services that CPI me measures. So if that's what's happening as we come out of recession, the economy should skyrocket again, which means that they're, they're probably going to lower interest rates into another screaming economy, which means, anyway, I think we're going to come out of as quickly as the bottom line, and I think that we're going to see a tremendous boom in risk on assets next year, which is usually a leading indicator, just like the Fed has become a trailing indicator for the economy, and it's true, uh, they, have, they are in pure reactionary mode. Uh, I think you'll see a boom in stocks um, when we trough here with probably another 10 to 15x rise in Bitcoin, Ethereum, which if you look at it from that perspective, whether it happens from you know, 1500 Ethereum or 1000 Ethereum or 2000 Ethereum, doesn't really matter that much because at that point, everybody's gonna be well into the money. I think that as inventories uh, basically uh, capitulate and we realize that we've oversupplied into the economy, you're going to see uh, a, a quick dip in employment rates, uh, and the employment rate is going to sh is going to have a sharp tick up, which we haven't had in a while. And uh, at that point, I think the government will stop raising interest rates quickly, uh, and at least say, "Oh, we're going to wait and pause and see what's happening." But at that point, the recession's probably almost over, by the way. Okay, so that just tells you how much they have on the shelf. So, so then the question becomes, okay, what do they do next? And most likely what they do is they'll either lower a little you know, or, or lower dramatically if they feel that unemployment is picking up because now they're gonna say, okay, well, we have a bigger problem than inflation, which is unemployment, right? Um, and, and so that'll probably play, start to play itself out in, later in the second half. So it's gonna happen faster than people think. A lot of my VC friends think this is gonna be prolonged. The only reason they're feeling so much pain is they overpaid for deals with such high prices for so long that their pain is going to be longer than everybody else's pain. So VC pain and core economy pain are not, are not aligned right now. And so I think core economy will recover faster than 
than venture and private equity. Great rundown there. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to switch topics a little bit. One thing is you must have to pay a lot of attention to regulation, mm. especially in the U.S., because you're across so many parts of crypto. What parts are you really keeping your eye on? Yeah, sure. So it's a good question. Uh, regulation is a, is a moving target. Compliance is a moving target. Uh, the good news is there's, there's a, a kind of a, a baseline now, and there's a, also a common sense aspect t to it. Um, and, and so, you know, we, I, I would say I look at it in, in, in probably really four different ways, right? So there's kind of the core services within Abra of, do we know everyone, every counterparty we're dealing with, whether it's a consumer, a business, a borrower, a lender, do we know who they are? Are we allowed to do business with them? Is there any reason why we wouldn't be allowed to do business with them? If they're a business, what kind of due diligence are we required to do? If they're borrowing, what are the collateral requirements? And so, so that's kind of a baseline, right? And it's, it's, it's also part of that whole common sense question when you're a centralized banking entity. If you're a decentralized hardware wallet, it's a different story, right? So, so then the question becomes, okay, now part two is, let's talk about the individual geographies that you're in. Are you in the US? Are you in Europe? Are you in South America? Are you in South, right? And then you overlay that with part three, which is what are the specific products, right? So trading it is regulated in the United States, for example, uh, is commodities trading, very different than um, lending, especially consumer lending versus even institutional lending. So you have to basically marry um, you know, the baseline of, of, of identifying, knowing customers, which gets into sanction screening with geography, with product, Right, and then you have to basically build technology systems and training, which is the fourth part that, that deals with all of that. And part of that is having people in place that in each geography for each product type can watch the bouncing ball, that moving target I was talking about, so that the rest of us know how it's changing. So that the product team, if they have to change things because rules have changed, not just laws, but regulators don't make laws, they interpret laws into rules. Right? And so if, they, if their interpretation changes, then often the product has to change, and so we have to keep pace with all of that. One thing I always think about with regulation is that a lot of these ideas about knowing that information kind of runs counter to some of the privacy and pseudonymity aims of crypto. And I'm just curious, your thoughts on how those two ideals can run together. Yeah, th that is actually one of my favorite questions that I actually that I seem to be getting more now than I did in the past, and I actually really respect that because it means that people are starting to understand that, you know, okay, we need to understand if centralized entities are adding value in this methodical march that I keep espousing towards decentralization. Another way to look at it, if you want to be harsher, is to say, well, why would I want to trust a centralized entity if we're in a, a march towards decentralization. So I have two perspectives on that. The first is I 100% believe that we're moving towards open standards-based decentralized systems for money, for banking, for transaction processing, uh, digital assets, and everything that falls into that sphere. The question is how will the average person, the average business entity, consume those capabilities that I just described. Will the average person understand what a public-private key pair is and how to transact on a blockchain by digitally signing something with a private key? Meaning, do they even understand what I just said? 
Or are they more likely to use something like NBA Top Shots, which is an NFT based on Ethereum? I, I believe it's Ethereum, maybe it's Wax, I'm not, I don't remember. But either way, they don't actually understand that it's an NFT based upon a, something similar to an ERC721 contract, whatever the hell that means. Right, so, so that's a wide spectrum, right? On the left-hand side, we could say, okay, we have somebody who's all in on decentralization, would never trust anybody with a key hardware wallet, maybe even a paper wallet, or if they memorized some 15-word phrase, and on the right is just a regular uh, run-of-the-mill consumer who is just wants to use a service that may be using this tech but doesn't understand. You know, in the early 90s, you'd have to be a TCP IP programmer, whatever that means, to program applications that would use the internet. Today, you just turn on Netflix and the video starts streaming. Now in the background, it's doing all that TCP IP streaming that I just talked about. And I think we're moving towards a world where people will just use this stuff and they'll have different services that take advantage of it. Some will be centralized like Abra, some will be decentralized. And Abra takes advantage of a lot of these decentralized systems, but we have to add significant value on top of the decentralized systems, otherwise there's no point. So that value could be, for example, hiding the complexity of what it means to use digital assets. I don't have to know how to digitally sign something with a private key in order to move my crypto around. But, but if all of a sudden, I, I, I get it and I know how a private key works and I want to take my digital assets and put them on a hardware or paper wallet, I can do that 24-7, for example, right? So that's a key tenet of how Abra works, is we say, okay, we're going to add value to folks who could, in theory, use DeFi to generate yield, use a ledger to custody, uh, use a ledger and MetaMask to manage their NFTs, uh, basically do yield farming via like all these DeFi liquidity pools and manage all of that on their own if they understood what I just said, right? But for most people, we can manage that for them but give them access 24-7 to those digital assets that they want to go alone, right? Then there's the perspective of, okay, so are we combining centralized and decentralized services? So for example, to generate yield, we have centralized lending, which means you're parking your Bitcoin with us in order to borrow dollars, right? Which is just a normal loan collateralized by Bitcoin. Or maybe we're generating yield by using a DeFi liquidity pool. Or maybe it's blended between the two, which is actually the reality of Abra today. And most, most individuals wouldn't understand the risk management processes involved in how to do that and how to generate a safe yield across this entire environment, right? And so, back to the point of there has to be value on top of the decentralized systems in order to justify your existence and actually have a sustainable business in the first place. No, that's great. I mean, one thing that stood out to me is whenever I notice something is increasing the ease of use, I always feel like I'm losing somewhere else, or that's privacy or just control. So if you flip the switch and say, we're increasing ease of use, but you still have that control and we're actually adding value otherwise. So, you know, I, I'm not gonna, I don't wanna pick on, on any one company, but there are several companies that fall in this boat. An example would be traditional wallets, like a PayPal or Robinhood, and I, I think they're getting a little bit better at this now, but when they launched, they would be like, oh, but, but you can't withdraw your Bitcoin that we let you buy. Well, that's not really Bitcoin. That's just basically some kind of exposure to the price movement of Bitcoin that in theory, they're going to make me whole on if the price of Bitcoin goes up. That's all it is. Now, if they change and say, okay, well, you can withdraw your Bitcoin, which is exactly what I'm talking about, 24-7, no questions asked. Yes, you've done 
given us your ID in advance, but once you're good to go, you're good to go. And, and there's a big difference there between a, a, a bank or a, a wallet provider that's just going to give you exposure to the price of something like Bitcoin and somebody that says, yeah, okay, I'm your, I'm your custodial, custodial partner for this, but you have 24-7 access to go to a hardware wallet anytime you want. Covered so much. Yeah. It's a really engaging conversation. Um, before we leave, I'd love it if you could just do one sound bite. What do you want to tell everyone? Yeah, look, I think my prediction is that Bitcoin, Ethereum are the future of banking. They're the future of transaction processing. We are super early. If I use a baseball analogy, innings one to nine, maybe we're in inning, the end of inning one, maybe the beginning of inning two, I don't know. But, but when I compare it to what happened in the traditional internet, right? When I was working on the first early browsers in my Netscape days, it feels that early. And there's so much more interesting user-facing stuff to be built on top of all this infrastructure that we're still building. And that's what's going to happen over the next 10 years. And so many more people to come in too. Yes. We're already the fastest adopted technology in history. The stuff that's being built to take advantage of that infrastructure will actually accelerate that in my opinion. It's not going to slow, it's going to go even faster. Which is very difficult for most people to get their arms around because we tend to think linearly. So it's, it's incredibly exciting for me. Well, thank you so much, Bill, for joining us here at the Coindesk Podcast booth, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your consensus. That's a wrap on today's consensus conversations. This episode was edited by Ryan Huntington and Eleanor Paul. If you enjoyed this content, be sure to tune into more special Consensus 2022 podcast episodes coming out soon.